All right, guys, on this week's episode of the Fit for Tomorrow podcast, I talked with Naveed Shan. Uh, Naveed is a physical therapist that I met in a dry needling course uh, about four years ago in uh, Phoenix, Arizona with Banner Hospitals. Um, Naveed's a great dude. Um, we connected over a couple of different things, but he also has a cash-based practice in the Chandler, Arizona area where he works predominantly with weightlifters. Um, so we talk a, a little bit in this podcast about what he does with his weightlifters and some of his approaches uh, to that. Um, and then in addition to that, he also works for Banner Hospitals in the emergency department where he provides physical therapy services and dry needling. And um, man, just some really cool stories that he shares about his experience using dry needling in the emergency department and uh, some of the implications of, you know, can we use manual therapy and dry needling to, to help reduce uh, medications, especially opioid prescriptions uh, when dealing with some of these acute pain scenarios. So his perspective and experience of, of being able to see patients right away as well as what he's able to do in, in his cash-based practices is obviously super interesting to me. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy this one. The first half of the episode episode is pretty heavy, talking about dry needling and manual therapy and, and what he does in the emergency department. And then in the second half, we really get into his cash practice and, and what he does with his weightlifter. So um, really cool episode, cover a lot of topics here with uh, Naveed, and it was good to catch up with him. So hope you guys enjoy uh, and enjoy the episode. All right, everybody. I am here today with Naveed Chan. Uh, I met Naveed... What, what did we just say? Four years ago was a dry needling yeah, course? Yeah, four years ago next month. Yeah. Yeah. So we met uh, through a dry needling course at Banner Hospital System in Phoenix, Arizona. And um, we connected over Tacos Chiwas. He, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he gave me the, uh, the recommendation for the best taco place I've ever been to. Um, and we've stayed in touch over the years with dry needling. And um, he also has a cash practice in Phoenix where he works with a lot of strength athletes. So definitely some things in common there. So today we'll talk a little bit about, um, dry needling and, and I, you know, he's doing some awesome stuff in the emergency departments with, with dry needling. So I want to definitely dive into to that experience and what you guys are doing there. Um, and how that maybe relates to opioid usage and those kinds of things. Um, and then, uh, we'll, we'll get right into the strength athlete side of it because, uh, that's what, what we're also doing on a day to day. So, Thanks for joining us. Do you want to introduce yourself and then uh, we'll get in? Yeah, absolutely, man. Nick, thank you for having me. I'm uh, happy to be here. Good, good talking to you. Good catching up. Um, yeah, like uh, like Nick said, I'm a physical therapist based out of uh, Phoenix, Arizona at Banner University Medical Center. Um, I actually started the first physical therapy program within the emergency department setting um, at the Banner University uh, Medical Center in Phoenix. Um, one of the first things that my director at the time had me do because he was, uh, he was a big fan of trying needling and, and a big proponent of it. And he, he thought he could help a lot of people. So my first, uh, continue ed course out of PT school was, uh, the course with Nick was, uh, integrative dry needling, which I really enjoyed. And I've, I've had it a part of my everyday practice since then. Um, I really enjoy it. Um, since then next month, it'll be four years in the emergency department setting. Um, I'm really happy with, uh, what I've developed there, the growth I've put there, um, and, you know, the, the things we can do for patients outside of just, you know, pen medication and anti-inflammatory and maybe a unnecessary x-ray. Um, so yeah, for just sure. happy to be here and happy to talk to you. I, I guess I didn't realize that was your first CE course coming out of school, huh? Yeah, man. I was like, I got, I, I literally got my license like two weeks before that course. And before I even started, my boss was like, Hey, uh, just so you know, we signed you up for a uh, dry needling course. That's going to be in two weeks. So I was like, yeah, that's awesome. That's exactly what I wanted. Yeah, that's cool. Um, what, I mean, I don't know if you can remember back that far, but what'd you think of starting out? Like, 
you know, the question is people ask sometimes from a dry needling standpoint, you know, should you have a bunch of experience before you do dry needling? Can you jump right into it? Um, I have my opinions. What, what do you, you know, what was your experience with that? You know, I've heard both. I've heard both guys, uh, people say like, Hey, you really want to get a, a, you know, a year or two or a couple years of experience in, uh, using manual therapy and Therax and, you know, really honing in your, you know, whatever, whatever skills you have before you take a dry needling course. Um, you know, I don't think I, uh, I don't think it hindered my progress. I think if anything, it added to it, my anatomy got really good. Um, and my clinical skills got really good taking that course with you. Um, I'm happy I did it. I don't think I would have waited any longer than I did. Yeah. And it gave me, it gave me something to use with patients right away that, you know, the providers couldn't do. I think there was one actually emergency department, uh, physician assistant that did take a, uh, IDN course before me, but she wasn't using it. So it was, it was really cool to, to, uh, to combine that with, you know, traditional medicine within the emergency department. So I was happy I took it when I did. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't really see any reason why you wouldn't. I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I, I think every, every new grad should take that course right away. It's, it's such a deep dive into pain science. And as much as Absolutely. I feel like our profession's trying to avoid treating pain, um, that's what people come to see us for, right. Is to get out of pain. So if you can do that with, with needling or cupping or whatever, man, you know, whatever techniques you use, but man, it's just such a big head start. So what are you guys doing in the emergency department? Because, um, you would probably know the stats on this better than me, but is that, a, I mean, around in here in Ohio, I don't know of anybody doing physical therapy in the emergency department, let alone dry needling. Um, yeah. so what are you guys doing? And, and is that, where is that as far as like the other, the rest of the profession? You know, um, Emergency department, med uh, emergency department physical therapy is still kind of a growing field within the U.S. It's really big in, in Australia and New Zealand and the U.K. and Canada. Um, they're almost primary provider roles in the emergency department. Um, and I do know a few in Australia that do use dry needling within the emergency department. Um, I remember uh, 2019, we actually had our first annual um, emergency department physical therapy conference, and there was about 30 of us. And I was the only one that raised their hand when they asked, who does dry needling? Interesting. And they were just shocked. They looked at me and they were like, you do dry needling? I said, yeah, I'm actually to the point that, you know, provider physicians or PAs will come up to me and say, hey, I think that patient could use some dry needling if you have a second um, for whatever it is with like a, a right neck or a, a paravertebral spasm or something. They're actually requesting it now. Um, so uh, I do know uh, here in Chandler, Arizona, about 20 miles east of where I'm at, they do, uh, they started implementing dry needling. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping it grows because I think it's, it's pretty fascinating. I know some other, uh, some other, I have some physician friends that are starting to get into the jumping on board and they, they see the benefits of it. Yeah. Um, where were some of the other people from that were PTs in the emergency department? Um, you know, there's a, there's a really strong presence in, in Colorado, uh, in Denver and Colorado Springs, there's a ton of emergency department PTs. There's quite a few in Arizona, um, uh, in Flagstaff and Tucson here in Phoenix. Um, and it's a growing, it's a growing, uh, it's a growing field. Um, there's probably, I think 40 to 50 full-time ED therapists in the country, which is kind of crazy. Cause you know, I think the first, uh, the, it might've been 2007 was the first, uh, first, uh, paper that was published regarding emergency department PT. So to see the growth, it's, you know, it's nice, slow and steady, but it's still growing. Um, and you know, I like what we can provide. Um, the skills kind of vary from physical therapists. Some people just treat it like a, 
uh, inpatient PT where it's just for, you know, uh, dispo planning, like sniff placement or home health placement. But I really like being that primary care, that orthopedic specialist that can go in there and help with the diagnoses or the, the differentials and in, in treating the, the patient then in there. Yeah. So and that's I see what I, that, that aspect, right? That's what I was curious. Like, what is your day-to-day role in, in that setting? Like, are you um, seeing so, people first or is it like an eval so after the we, case? So kind of combination of both. Um, we actually, uh, I think last year in the middle of pandemic, when it was getting kind of crazy uh, and the emergency departments were getting full, I started this, I spoke to our medical director. Um, I spoke to our medical director about creating a triage protocol where, you know, we have these lower acuity patients and I will see lower acuity patients. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to dry needle like a, a seven year old lady with a hip dislocation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but someone comes in with, you know, uh, just out of a, a motor vehicle accident or someone comes in with some type of uh, lumbar derangement or, you know, they get up and they can't move their neck in a certain direction. We can get those patients in, treat them really fast. Uh, I'll do a quick uh, evaluation. I'll talk to the, either the physician assistant or the physician about what I think they need. And, you know, what I'm, what I'm seeing with the patient, they'll kind of do a look over and then we'll start the treatment and get them out as fast as possible. Um, we do that. And then also after the fact, you know, sometimes people have kind of a weird presentation uh, where, you know, they might have this left arm pain and this chest pain that, you know, their first thought is a heart attack and it ends up being some type of, you know, radiculopathy or some type of like a uh, uh, referral pattern from um, some trigger points or something. And, you know, that'll be after the fact where one of the physicians say, like, I think this is muscle, but I'm not sure. Can you take a look at this for me? And then I'll go in and I'll treat him. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I really what? enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's such an awesome setting. And, um, what kind of results are you seeing as far as seeing people that soon after, uh, the injury or that soon after the mechanism, you know, like I would say traditional PT, uh, a little different in the cash world, but in traditional PT, right. They, they got to go to the emergency department. Then they got to go see the primary care physician. Then I got to see a specialist. And then finally they get to PT and it's already been four weeks. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's crazy. Uh, and, and we're starting to see some revenue, like research published on revenue as far as total medical expense, whether you get physical therapy first or you go through that kind of cycle first. Um, what are you guys, I mean, you're living it. What are you seeing as far as when, when you're able to get to somebody in the emergency department in that setting? That's, um, not, you know, that's it, not the norm. Yeah, definitely not the norm. And, you know, there's some patients that are just, you know, they're so hot, their pain is so out of control. They're so inflamed, whatever it is, I can't do much for them. Yeah. Um, Um, but there's some patients, you know, they're coming in with chronic pain or maybe it's some type of like lumbar derangement that we see really quick results for. And, you know, um, that I can treat very quickly. I'd say it's probably, I don't know, 60 to 70% of the patients I treat, I can treat there and see some pretty significant results within like, you know, the 30, 45 hour that I have treating them in the emergency department versus them having to wait. Um, and there's some patients like say, you know, some type of whiplash disorder right after the, right after the accident, like an hour after, then there's not much I can do for them. And there's, you know, I really don't want to dry needle them or do any type of, you know, manual therapy just because they can't tolerate it. So it really depends on the, on the patient. And, but I'd say a, a fair amount, you know, there's some interventions I could do that could get them some comfort. That's pretty cool. Are they combining, um, like some type of a steroid, uh, protocol with the dry needling? Are you seeing any of that? Um, sure. So yeah, it's kind of, you know, the, the really, the, there's a big push against, uh, opioid usage, which is awesome. Um, mm-hmm. 
uh, and you know the the pretty much uh, nearly I don't say nearly all, but a, a good majority of the patients get some type of muscle relaxer and an anti-inflammatory, like like a like a toradol injection along with uh, some type of muscle in, muscle relaxer um, that may or may not help. And then on top of that, I'll go see them. And then I'll add whatever interventions I want. Sometimes it's okay. cupping, sometimes it's dry needling or manual therapy, uh, things like that. It's usually that combination. And uh, sometimes uh, providers will ask me for some feedback, like, what do you think they should use or what, what do you think they would need that would be helpful with, uh, with that treatment or, you know, referral after. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, I'm hearing some of these pain docs are doing, you know, they're going for an injection and then they do whatever the injection is. And then they're actually manipulating the, the, um, hypodermic needle to, to create some of that yeah. tissue lesion. Um, so it's interesting to hear that, you know, get your tour at all, get that thing calmed down and then do some needling for kind of that longer, you know, four or five day turnover. Um, pretty yeah. interesting. Are you aware of yeah, any actually, data? Oh, go ahead. Uh, so I just, uh, just a quick aside there, actually some of the older school, the old school docs, they'll do like trigger point injections. Well, mm-hmm. they will do that. And, you know, with lidocaine or something like that, where they see it and, you know, either in the subscap or in the low back, and then they'll have me go in and dry needle after. And we see some pretty cool results. Um, a lot of the, the newer docs or the younger PAs, they don't really do that. But, you know, with some of the, the old school docs that still you know, implement those type of, uh, interventions at ED. We saw some pretty cool, uh, results with that. That's yeah. I was talking to a group of podiatrists. This was probably three or four years ago, uh, maybe more than that. And, uh, they were telling me like, yeah, we do, we do the lidocaine injection, but really we're in there manipulating the needle. Yeah. And, and they think that did more than, than the actual lighting. And this was before, you know, we were doing an introductory talk on dry needling. Right. So oh, that's cool. they've been doing it a long time. They just didn't call it dry needling. Sure. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> um, are you aware of any data on cost? Like does banner, are you aware of any of the, whether you're there or not kind of what it costs the average patient? Um, I, I mean, I don't know that that data um, exists. I'm just curious. So they're, they're working on it. Cause you know, the, one of the reasons that the, the growth has kind of been studying, stunned with the emergency department, because with these huge hospital systems in the emergency department, the, the bottom line is always, okay, how much money is this going to cost or how much money is this going to save? Right. Um, there was some pretty cool data. I think it was out of Illinois that was, it was like on the verge of being published and it was, uh, I think it was around, I want to say about $300,000 a year that the hospital saved because the emergency departments tend to be like a black hole as far as money. Like they, they don't, they don't make money in the U S unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it was about $300,000 saved annually with the emergency department uh, uh, physical therapists in that setting, which is a substantial amount. Um, and that's, that doesn't, that's not just, uh, you know, musculoskeletal orthopedic injuries. That's also like, you know, dispo placement for, you know, going into a patient, getting into a skilled nursing facility or getting home health or not having to be admitted. But it was a combination of the three that, you know, it saved them a substantial amount. I mean, I don't know any hospital-based physical therapists that are making $300,000 a year. So it saved them a good amount of, of money, uh, having a PT in, 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 uh, in the emergency department. Um, I was originally, when I started, uh, they wanted to see how much money, uh, how much money we would either make or how much money we would save in the hospital setting. Um, with me there, it kind of, this, the data kind of fell apart and they didn't want to continue doing the research, but it ended up, um, my initial calculation was it would have made the hospital 
close to four hundred and fifty to four hundred and seventy thousand um, dollars had they been charging for the uh, physical therapy evaluations when the emergency department. So it was a substantial amount. Yeah, it's a chunk. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah. like you're saying, I don't know what the rates are in, in Phoenix, but they're not they're not a hundred hundred and fifty thousand even. So no. yeah, I mean, no, you're you're talking a chunk of cash. Um, the and for people that that uh, aren't aware, part of the role of a physical therapist in a hospital is is discharge planning, as far as where that patient's going. Yeah. To go. so that, that's what that's what uh, Navi was referencing there. Um, you know, does the person get to go home? Do they need to go to a, a nursing home, a rehab facility? That's a that's a big chunk of of what they do. Now, in the emergency department, is part of that deciding if they get admitted to the hospital? Is that part of that role? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's probably about a third of what I see, maybe twenty five percent is, okay. you know, we'll call them failure to thrive patients where, you know, they don't have anything wrong with them. They don't, they're not in like uh, diabetic ketoacidosis or not having a heart attack, nothing like that, but they're just what we call failure to thrive. They're not, they're not sick enough to be admitted for any reason, but they certainly aren't safe at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they'll come in, they get, they, they get taken to the emergency department and we save them money by, you know, doing the evaluation there and hopefully getting them into a rehab facility um, or getting them set up, uh, through other, some other type of resources. Um, that's, that's not my favorite part of the job, but, um, I, I'm more of a, a ortho PT, but it is a, it is an important part of the, of the role in my, in my setting. Right. And then the other thing we had talked about kind of right before COVID happened, you guys were looking at reduction of opioid usage. Um, yeah. whatever happened to that? If um, I remember right, that, that was, was before COVID, right? That, that was right before COVID, yeah. and um, it, that again, that fell apart too. That there was it actually started with a pretty cool story. The uh, the medical director, um, so that was a he's a physician in charge of the entire emergency department. He he's the kind of the director for all the other physicians. Um, we had this woman come in, um, and she had this. It was I forgot what it was. If it, I forgot what it was, but it was some type of like um, uh, like thoracic spasm. And he was like, I want to see what you can do before I give her any medication. And it was just kind of just out of curiosity. Right. So I got in there. She couldn't breathe Her like her and her and her intercostal muscles were like in spasm. She could barely move. She was in tears. Um, I did some dry needling and in, uh, in the subscap region. Um, I did some manual therapy, did a quick uh, mani- thoracic manipulation, some some PNFs um, patterns. We got her pain. She went from a 10 to maybe a three without any medication. And the, the medical director was just blown away. And then after that, he was like, I really want to see what we can do as far as, you know, re- reducing opioid usage in the emergency department. Unfortunately, you know, COVID hit, everything came to a halt. We're kind of all just barely hanging on right now. But that was kind of the, 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 the beginning of that. And that's what he wanted to see. And that, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, we have a couple stories like that, specifically with the medical director. That's awesome to hear. I mean, I'm always blown away when, when people look at research and think, Oh, such and such doesn't work and this and that. And then you you hear those stories and, and obviously you and I have lived those stories and it's like, there there's definitely situations where manual therapy and dry needling, like have that type of an effect where, where you can take somebody's pain down, you know, 70% yeah. in, in a session. Right. And, and that's, it's more than you're going to do with, with most medications and awesome to hear. I hope you guys get that study going again, because um, I, I was pretty excited when you were telling me about it that's game changer stuff, right? Like if we can reduce opioid need and usage and, and still show that, that people are getting out of pain, right? Cause that's, that's the other side of it. It's like, you know, people want pain relief. So 
if if that's a way to do it man that would be so cool so absolutely man. hopefully this covid stuff uh i don't think it's going anywhere anytime <laughs> soon but <laughs> i don't think so either man but i think we're just kind of start working away around it and i really yeah. hope to get that you know that research off the off the uh uh off the floor um there was actually a pretty cool story i wanted to share um so it was with the same medical director and we had this guy he was he was in chronic pain for like 10 years man just awful low back pain he was this older guy he'd been through he'd been the gambit i'm sure you've seen patients like this they're just in constant pain um and he came to the ed he couldn't do anything and he was a miserable dude he was yelling at the nurses he was yelling at the doctors um the, the doc gave him, you know, uh, a single, uh, a single Percocet just to kind of appease him. Didn't do anything. He was super angry. And I, and this is when I was first starting. Um, and I just walked up to the, I walked up to the medical director. I was like, Hey man, could I see him? Cause at this point they didn't really understood, understand what I do in the emergency department. So I was like, he was like, yeah, have at it. So I get in there and this was maybe, this was maybe like a month after I took your course. And I was talking to him. I, I, I was talking to him. I, you know, I was like, I, I'm not sure how much I could help you, but we could try and see what happens. And I'm working on him. Do his, I, I'm dry needling his, par, his, his paravertebrals. I'm getting some uh, in his multifidi. And he's just laying there. And the medical director walks in. And he didn't know I was doing this. He just sees like, you know, 10 needles in this guy's back. And it's just, <laughs> his jaws dropped. He's just like, what, what the hell are you doing? And then... Uh, and then he walks out, he didn't say anything to me. And I take, I take all the needles out. I did some manual therapy, worked on them a little bit. He's like, Hey man, I want to talk to the, I want to talk to my doctor again. And the, I walk out, I didn't realize this. The doc is ready to call a security guard to escort this guy out because he was, he'd been such a jerk to everybody. Oh geez. And the medical director walks into the, to the room. He's like, this is the best I've felt in 10 years. <laughs> I just wanted to let you know that yeah. this is amazing. I don't know what that guy did, but I just wanted, I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to go home. And the, the director was just blown away. He didn't, he didn't realize that. And that was kind of the, the, it was cool because it, two things, we helped this patient that had been in pain for so long. And then two, I finally got some, some buy-in from some of the physicians that what I do is not just, you know, hocus pocus or whispering sweet nothings in the patient's ears. <laughs> that's so true. Oh, that's an awesome story. I mean, for so many reasons, that's an awesome story. Um, yeah. A month, a month of, uh, a month out from learning how to do it. Wow, well, yeah. you're, you're talking two months out of school, and yeah. uh, you've you've changed this guy's pain in in whatever half hour than than he's yeah. had. Yeah, I mean that's just that's awesome. That's a cool story. Uh, so, <clears throat> with that in mind, and part so you got this emergency room part of what you do, and then you also have your own your own private practice, correct? Absolutely. Um, kind of. How that happen? To, um, so, you know. In PT school, I had a, I had a director that was very pragmatic, or not a director, a professor that was very pragmatic with us and said, hey, you really need to understand insurance reimbursements and, and how to get paid by insurance and how to get, you know, your units. And she showed us this exercise where the, she was standing on a foam pad and had a baseball tied to a band. And she was, and she's like showing us this and she's like, and you could do this for a baseball player. And you could charge for neuromuscular reeducation, and I, I was just kind of blown away. Like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Like, why would you? <laughs> like, what is that doing for the person? And then there, and then I went to obviously in a clinical rotations. I uh, was I was uh, I was at an outpatient 
uh, uh, sports outpatient clinic. And, you know, I got really good at insurance fraud and I really got really good at seeing 30 patients a day. And I realized this is not, this is not what I had in mind when I signed up for school. And this is not how I want to treat patients. I don't want to see patients for 10 minutes and tell them to, to go do like some yellow external rotation by themselves. I wanted to do my own thing. So maybe, let me see, I, I met you in January. I opened up a clinic inside of a gym in April. Um, and I kind of just started working. Um, before that, I'd been competing in uh, strongman and powerlifting for about five years. So I was kind of already kind of uh, in the community already. And I'm, I, I know you see these guys are constantly in pain. They always got something wrong with them. They're trying to work around injuries. And their bottom line is, I want to get healthy enough to keep lifting. I want to compete. I want to do whatever. So it was, it's been awesome because I understood the language. I understand what they needed. And I understood how to, how to get them better and how to work around uh, whatever injury they had. Um, so that started in April of 2018. It's been kind of growing ever since. I really enjoy it. So uh, how long were you there. out of school? Uh, graduated December, January, February, March, started in April. So about five months. How long did you yeah. last at that first job? Oh, you mean the clinical rotations? Oh, that was a clinical. Oh, okay. Okay. That's, yeah, that's that what I was trying days. to figure out. I was like, where were you there? Like uh, a week? <laughs> no, dude, I was there. That was the longest clinical. 10 weeks of my life, man. Ugh. Yeah. I, I, I experienced uh, uh, a clinical somewhat like that. And honestly, my first job was kind of like that where, yeah. you know, you're managing your schedule more than you're managing patients. You're, oh, yeah, go, yeah. Ri go ride this bike over here because it's going to be good for you. But really, I just need five. Well, I, and, I yeah. got to do this or I got to <laughs> do that. Right. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, unfortunately, it is what it is. And I know a new grad PT has been practicing for a year and he's burned out. He's done. He's like ready to quit the profession. Yeah. He's one year out. So. Yeah, man. I got, I got classmates that are looking in case management jobs or pro, like medical sales job because, you know, these, these mills and these like really like that are pushing, seeing 30, 40 patients a day, they're killing them. And that's, I don't think that's what the practice should be. And I kind of actually from you learning from you uh, and when we were in that course and you had already had your cash pay going for a while, I was like, he's, he, you made it sound a little too simple. You made it sound a little too easy. Like it was just going to jump in. But I really, man, I'm really happy that I did that. And I'm able to treat patients in, in a way that I want, that I'm not worried about units. I'm not worried about, oh, did we do that for eight minutes? Oh, did we do this for 15? Uh, when's my next one coming in? Oh, I'm going to get them on a bike. Like, oh, have this person do that. I'm just, they get an hour of my time. I'm able to do what I want with them. And, you know, we see some pretty good results with it. Yeah. I must've been still naive at that point if I made it sound too simple. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I mean, it's still, I mean, it still has its, uh, its unique challenges. Right. And I can only imagine your day, right. Cause you're working a full-time gig and then doing this on top. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you're busy, you're hustling. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if I didn't, if I don't, I don't, I think I didn't enjoy what I did. And if I didn't have, you know, the, the autonomy I did in the emergency department and the autonomy I did, I have within my own clinic, I don't think I could work as much as I do, but you know, I really enjoy both. And it's pretty cool when you, you know, you have a guy that's uh, two weeks out of a competition and he did something to his back or he did something to his shoulder and you can get him, you can get him good to go. And he's able to compete. He's able to hit a PR. He's able to, you know, finish third or whatever he wants. Um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty damn good feeling. Yeah. I, I agreed, obviously. Um, so you do dry needling. What are your other manual therapies? Like what are your other kind of specialties? 
Um, so I finished, uh, there's a, a pretty, pretty decent, not pretty decent. He's a pretty damn good physical therapist here, uh, called Tim Farron. Uh, he's a orthopedic fellow. He's been, I, he was physical therapist of the year here, I think in 2017, but he has a, a course called, um, Phoenix manual therapy. And he teaches that along with Jesse Ellis, who's the director of health and performance for the Portland trailblazers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I consider those two guys mentors and I went through a COMT course, uh, a manual therapy course with them. Um, so I learned a lot. It's all Maitland and Paris trained. Um, and that was a huge game changer for as far as, you know, my treatment and, uh, my manual therapy treatment and also my clinical reasoning. Um, I also started diving into, uh, uh, the MDT model. I've taken two courses so far. Um, I really enjoy that in my clinic. Um, but also I'm seeing pretty good results and I'm actually working on an article for an emergency department, uh, resident magazine on how to, how physicians can implement some of those, uh, interventions, whether the manual therapy interventions or the, uh, repeated movement in one direction intervention of those, I would say those are kind of, kind of my, uh, my, uh, foundations as far as treatment. I really enjoy those. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm like a strong Maitland guy, a strong McKenzie guy, I like blending both. Yeah. My, um, again, I always think it's interesting how people find the same paths, but in PT school, our instructors were Maitland and we're also Maitland instructors, our orthopedic uh, guys. So we got a pretty heavy dose of, of Maitland orthopedic stuff. And um, it it just fits in, right? Like you find the comparable, you mobilize it, whatever you're actually doing when you mobilize something. Um, But it's just, it's another way to get to, to get to some of those comparables. How are you mixing those together? Like in your mind, let's say somebody walks in with back pain, you got a power lifter back pain. <clears throat> what's um what's a session or what's a process look like for you? Um, you know, for back pain, especially, uh, especially for back pain, I'm really kind of leaning in towards that MDT model, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, it doesn't work from everybody. I think actually that guy, Tim Farron, uh, he has a quote, uh, about McKenzie. He's like, well, McKenzie got right. He got really right. But some of the stuff, it just doesn't make sense. You know? So I go to that go down that treatment model of, you know, repeated motions, sustained motions, if there's a directional preference. Um, and I work through there and I kind of, I don't try to force it and I don't try to, I don't call them a, I think they call them non-responders or mechanically inconclusive, something like that. I don't stop there. Um, I kind of start working towards, towards the Maitland model and see if there's anything that's, uh, not moving as well. Um, finding that asterisk sign and trying to repeat it, uh, trying to repeat it or trying to, don't know what that was. Am I back? You're back. Sorry, I got a call. <clears throat> okay. Uh, uh, trying to see uh, if we can, you know, finding that asterisk model and going through that clinical reasoning as far as the maintenance approach. Um, I like combining the two. I don't think one works for everybody. Um, and I like having a combination of both because um, what's that Bruce Lee quote? Take, take what's useful and throw away the rest. Like yeah. whatever I can apply for that patient in front of me, I, I try to do. Um, and I don't think one model fits for everybody. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I tell people all the time, like if the press ups are going to work, they're going to work and they're going to work really well, but yeah, then sometimes they're not going to do anything. Right. So no. it, is, yeah. it is where it is. But when the press ups work, UPA kind of back to front mobs also are going to work like then they're going to work really well so uh or or a sideline rotational mob or whatever but you're going to find one of those two are also going to work and then do some press-ups and do you need all those people acute back pain 
Um, yeah, almost, uh, I wouldn't say almost always, um, sometimes like, you know, the biggest thing is, especially in the emergency department, I always kind of talk to them first about, you know, what we can do for them. And I give them some options. We can do, we can do manual therapy. We can do, we can do this. We can do dry needling if you're comfortable with it. Um, and I always, my, really my only contraindication for most people is, are you apprehensive about needles? Yeah. And I'm always surprised, man. I've had guys, you know, you could tell they just got out of, you know, did at least five years in some prison and they got some <laughs> tattoo on their face and they're like, no needles scare me. And I was like, what? But Ta- tattoos like, are not, push it, right. Yeah. Tattoos are not a sign of if they're okay with needles or not. No, it but, is not um, a sign. no, but yeah, I am. I wouldn't say all always, but there's a, a pretty good majority of those patients. I will dry needle um, because I, you know, I get some pretty good results with them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm careful with the acute disc. Like if I think it's a real hot disc, I'm a little yeah. careful because I've seen them kind of spasm react on top. I don't know exactly what that mechanism of is, but I've seen that a few times, but otherwise um, like yeah, if a couple if weeks out, no biggie. Yeah. If it's like a really acute radiculopathy, like I've seen some guys, uh, actually I've had quite, I've had a few, it's weird. I've had a few physicians that come in right away, like hours of onset and those guys I won't do because you know, there's not much you can do aside from, you know, getting in positions of comfort. Um, mm-hmm. I won't do that, but you know, these kind of spasms that come in or these deformities where they have this like lateral derangement, um, those I can, I can get some pretty decent results with some dry needling fairly yeah. quickly. Yeah. I, the, the people that don't treat shifts with repeated motion also kind of boggle my brain. Like if somebody's got a lumbar shift, like just give them some side glides and let's move on. With our day. <laughs> Yeah, man. It was a patient I just saw, you know, I think two weeks ago, she came into my clinic. She had gone to this chiropractor. Um, She'd gone to this chiropractor who treated her for like a year for this lateral shift. And she was like, it was obvious, man. And it got better after a year. And then six months later, it came back. The guy was too busy. So she came to me and I got, you know, just, just those lateral shifts. We ended, we ended the treatment with some dry needling and some other, some other, uh, some table treatment, but just side gliding. She's like, I got better within 15 minutes. And that guy took a year and I'm not bashing chiropractors. Cause I refer out to chiropractors. I have friends that are chiros, but there's a lot like, of chiros that do McKenzie. Yeah. There's a ton yeah. of chiros that, and yeah. there's special courses for MDT courses for chiros, but yeah. it was just kind of boggles my mind. Like, what was he doing for a year? Yeah. I've had a few lateral shifts that don't respond, um, to, to repeated motions, but for the most part, man, they just work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, what the heck was I going to ask you? Eh, doesn't matter. Uh, what do you do first? You a manual therapy, like joint tissue work first or needle first? Um, trying to think I usually, I usually do manual therapy first, just to ease the nervous system, ease the tissues and kind of getting them comfortable with some, with hands-on stuff. And then I'll usually finish up. Uh, it depends. That's usually for low back. Um, for if it's like extremity, if it's extremities, if it's like the neck, um, I might do some needling first just to ease them up. If they have like a really, really stiff trap or that like they're, they got some type of, uh, 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 going on. I might do some needling first just to with, with some Easton attached to it just to get them to calm down a bit. Um, yeah. but yeah, I almost always, do, it, it, I guess it varies on the patient. Yeah. I would, I mean, I would say the same. I, I mix it up from depending on the person, but I get that question in courses all the time. So I'm always curious, you know, you've been doing it four years now, kind of where you've ended up as far as what comes first. Um, yeah. given that we're in a kind of a similar model practice wise. 
Uh, do you do a lot of exercise stuff? How's that look in your practice? Oh yeah. Almost always. There's, there's not a patient that doesn't do exercise stuff. Um, we'll do the manual therapy first. And once we get that, you know, increased range of motion, we got that reduced pain. We always end it with, uh, uh, all right, this is what we're going to do the rest of the session, or this is what I want you to do every day. Once you're out. Um, I don't really like the come in here three days a week model. I like, you know, uh, I like the patient being independent, like, and I don't think we need to wait a lot, waste a lot of time with me watching you do like hip cars and me watching you do some, you know, thoracic rotation. I want you to do this on your own because I can know, I know you're, you're a big boy, you're a big girl. You can be independent with this, but yeah, there's nobody that leaves my office that isn't getting some type of homework. You you mentioned the word cars. Have you done the FRC course? Um, I haven't done the FRC course. I've done the FRR courses, but man, I really love it. I really love those that the, the, the end range training, the controlled articular rotation, things like that. Um, they're just really pricey, man. Like I think the two of the FRR courses were about 2,800 or 2,800 total. I was, I thought it was 13 or 14 a piece. Yeah. Yeah. For a two day, for a two day course. For a two day, eight hour course. (laughs) Or if you want to do it online, it's the same price. It's the same price online in a shorter amount of time. Yeah. And there's no CEUs. Cause I was gonna, I was going to yeah. do one. I, I need a few CEUs for the end of the year here. And I was yeah. like, that's one I've been wanting to take. And then yeah. like, it's like hey. <laughs> yeah, man. It's, it's like, man, can I justify this? Like, but you know, I am going to take I, it. Eventually, I think it's great material. Yeah. yeah. I, if I'd rather do it in person if I can do it in person. So I'm probably going to wait yeah. until I can. Um, I'm curious about it though. Uh, since you've done it, like on the surface, it kind of just looks like end range isometrics and end range kind of eccentric kind of stuff. And is there, is yeah. there more to the theory or is it mostly just kind of end range? To me, I think it's just end range isometrics and it's really forcing those end range. It's really forcing that full range of motion to me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that's a, what it, you know, watching it on YouTube, on. that's what it looks like. Yeah. That's what it looks like to me too. Mm -hmm. Um, The FRR has a little bit more to it. Um, um, And is the FRR, is that the the manual therapy one? Yeah, that's a, that's a functional range release course. That's a manual therapy one. And that's open to, it's actually pretty cool. I did it at the UFC performance Institute and they had guys from, they had therapists from the air force, from like two or three different NHL teams. They had the therapist from, for the UFC performance Institute. So it's some, some pretty high level clinicians taking the courses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're just pricey, man. But mm-hmm. I really, I really enjoy the models and I really like giving those to patients. What's the manual therapy. Is it mostly just like soft tissue work or is it joint based? Yeah. What is the, uh, mostly soft tissue work. Okay. Mostly like it's really good. If you want to get really good at palpation muscles and things like that, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, that'll talk me into wanting to do it now. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> good to hear. Um, what, uh, well, you know, we'll, we'll wrap this thing up here soon. What are some things that you, um, tell your strength athletes, like, what are the things you're seeing a lot of, you know, we got a pretty, pretty decent following of Olympic weightlifters and, and a few power lifters, but, um, what are some of the things that you see and, and you're going to work with your athletes the most? You know, it, it's all, it always comes down to patterns, man. I see a lot of like labral injuries and a lot of, I see a lot of hip issues and I see a lot of limitation and rotation, internal rotation with a lot of the a lot of the powerlifters, a lot of the strongmen, and it ends up causing some issues down the road, whether that's, you know, some type of anterior impingement, whether that's some type of like labral issue, same thing with the thoracic spine. 
these guys come in and they're like, and almost every pilot or every strongman I see, they have like limitations in their thoracic spine and that's causing a lot of issues down the chain or up the chain. Um, so that's kind of, I almost all, like, I get so many shoulders, I get so many hips and it's almost always, it's almost always a thoracic spine uh, yeah. as far as shoulder issues. And that's what I'm kind of, I kind of work on that. And I, I mean, almost everybody, ha- I, almost every athlete, I, I don't say almost every, but a, a vast majority that are coming in with shoulder issues tends to be stemming from the thoracic spine. So what do you think that is? I mean, there's a part of me that says that stiff thoracics and adaptation to, to being able to back squat and deadlift a lot. Right. I yeah. mean, that's, that's probably part of where that comes from. Why do you think it turns into an injury? Like, are they trying to do overhead work when I, I, I guess I'm just, you know, at what level do we go? Your body's adapting to be stiff for, for your power. Um, sure. Versus you need the mobility to be able to do, you know, whatever an overhead press. I mean, if it's strong, man, I get it. If it's powerlifting, how do you, how do you, how do you make those decisions on, on an elite level person? Um, you know, I don't see, I haven't seen a, a detriment or a, a negative effect on like a page, like on a, on a person's performance. So a lot of guys are like low bar powerlifters <laughs> and they're really cranking into external rotation, but they don't have it. And they don't have mm-hmm. it. And their shoulder's fine. They got full 180 degrees position, but it's their thoracic spine. That's just stiff as hell. Um, and you know, that might be, that might add to their performance in the bench press to have a really stiff, you know, thoracic spine, but I'm not, I'm not convinced it's like a detriment to the performance that they get an improvement in mobility. Excuse me. Um, yeah, I don't really see that, um, as a detriment. I mean, it's obviously an adaptation to the sport. Um, everything gets stiff, hips get stiff, low back stiff. Like most of these guys don't have lumbar flexion. Uh, most of these guys don't have any thoracic extension, but if we can improve it just enough, they don't need to be Gumby. They don't need to do back bends, but they need to at least to get some of that torque off the shoulder and off the elbow. No, that makes sense. Uh, when they're back squatting, when they're bench pressing. Right, 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 right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's an intriguing, especially when you get to the real high end people, it's an intriguing question to me. Um, you know, if you're just training for life then that's a different scenario, but if you're an elite, you know, where does that come from? We, uh, the hip external rotation and missing internal is become one of the things that I just, I don't know if I'm looking for it more. I'm just finding it more or, or I'm aware of it now. I don't know, but I don't know if it's a, is it, is it the squatting, right? So we're always turning out when we're squatting and deadlifting, or is it life where we're always sitting in a posterior tilt hip external rotated position and, and now we're missing internal. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Um, Kind of both. Now I'm kind of checking my seating, making sure I'm not sitting in external <laughs> rotation. Um, I kind of I, both. I um, <laughs> um, I think it's a again, it's an adaptation. Like I see, like most of these guys, I don't have like this. Uh, um, I think it's it's kind of what's that Gary? What's that great cook quote? Putting a loading loading on dysfunction or something like that, where, mm-hmm. you know, these guys already have this lifestyle where a lot of these guys have sit down jobs where they're sitting there, they're working IT, they work at a desk, like, you know, eight hours a day and they're sitting in that position and they're trying to get into, you know, a good squat position and they're not able to. So they're sitting with their knees out, uh, toes out. So they're never get. there's no need for them to get an internal rotation, but it's causing some issues down the road if they're kind of ignoring it. Right. Yeah. I, <clears throat> And, and it's just something I'm trying to put together in my own head and, and make sense of it. I, I kind of couch it to, to clients as, look, if you're sitting all day and this is the position your pelvis is in and your hips externally rotated, well, when you go to walk, run, jump, like 
you're just used to being there. That's what you've trained the most. So that's where your brain yeah. goes first, right? Like that's your pattern. That's your activation pattern that it's best at because you do it the most. So how do we train out that pattern? Um, cause certainly I can put a mulligan belt on their hip and give them some internal rotation and, um, it's going to last an hour, but I can give it to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so how do we, you know, what is the best way with, when you have an athlete that is sitting all day in that position, then their, their training is in that position. What is, how do we get them to sustain that hip internal? That's the, that's the beast. What's your, I mean, what's your move? What's your exercise? Um, Not, I usually one, go. Where do you, yeah. Um, I usually, well, I'll always have them, you know, <clears throat> obviously we can't walk around with them with a mulligan belt, but I'll, I'll usually have them do some, you know, hip distractions and working on, mm -hmm. uh, going back to FRC and getting them in that 99, 90, 90 position, uh, with impales or rails. And that's, uh, so in the FRC terminology is 90, 90 sitting with your legs kind of one in front of the other one behind, or is it laying on exactly. your back with your feet on the wall? It's the first one. No, no, no. It's sitting up. It's the first one. It's yep. like sitting in like shin is parallel to femur. Femur is parallel to shin yep. and holding that position and really trying to improve internal rotation in that position. Although the other 90, 90 position, I think it's from PRI mm -hmm. does kind of does. You can do the same thing. Rotation. Yeah. You can do the same yeah. thing. Yeah. So I'll have them do that and I'll have them sit there and actively train internal rotation. Um, and you know, we see some pretty good results as far as reducing hip pain, just just doing that. Yeah. So I used to use that one all the time. And then I just, I kept finding that my people that had hip pain, like they would still pinch there. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. it's still, they'd still just jam up. And then I was like, all right, well, how do we get control of this position? Um, went down the PRI world. I've done a lot of the PRI stuff. Um, it works, but it's complicated. It's very complicated. Complicated. Like, um, I think, uh, I think I had a friend tell me, he's like, you can't just take one course and get it. You have to take all 200 of them or whatever it is. <laughs> well, I know somebody that's taken like some of the courses nine times each and he's, he's very competent. Like he's incredibly, yeah. you know, smart. Um, but my question is always, can you translate, if you have to take it nine times, can you translate it to a client? Right? Like, yeah. Knowing what, you know, your background, if it takes that many times to understand it, oh, how the heck am I going to teach a client that in 30 minutes? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it's tough. It's tough. I've been doing a lot of like split stance work because then I can mess with, right. I get them in like a gate pattern of, you know, lunge position type deal. And now I can yeah. internally rotate one side. And then when I see that other foot blow out. So if I go hip internal rotation with extension, the knee behind, then I'll see that lead leg externally rotate because they don't have the range. So they're just compensating and I can correct yeah. it in, in, in my mind, it's a little more functional than sitting in a, in a hip 90, 90, um, on the floor. So that's, that's what I've been playing with the most recently. Um, but I think that's, that's a tough one. Always a tough one. Yeah, absolutely. Because you just see, they, they just compensate the other, right? You internally rotate one hip, but then the pelvis just rotates and moving that way. Yeah. Right. And oh, look at all the internal rotation I got. Well, no, you just, <laughs> you, just you just shifted your hips. <laughs> yeah. You just shifted your hips. Um, and so how do you block that? And then not only how do you keep that from happening, but how do you make sure when they go home and do it, they're not, they're not cheating. Yeah. You know? So those are, you know, whatever, those are the eternal struggles, I guess but we've been doing paloff presses in that split split lunge position. Oh yeah. It's a little gnarly. 
That's kind of cool. It is, man. I like I like the split. I like the split squat position for so many uh, different things, man. For rows, for pressing. Um, one, it's forcing like a lot of stability, a lot of trunk stability, a lot of control. And like what you said, uh, it's forcing into that internal rotation. And they if they can sustain that knee position, it's it's not an easy position to do. No. Um, and I see that a lot in strength conditioning too. Is they're really pushing that split squat position. Uh, with different things, either the forefoot loaded or uh, that forefoot loaded position or, you know, isometrics in there. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a powerful position, especially for athletes. Yeah. You're seeing a lot of the isometric stuff now. I feel like Boyle was yeah. the first one to, you know, we're going back, I don't know, eight or nine years. Boyle, when was that article where he was like, no more back squatting for my athletes? He was doing all mm-hmm. Bulgarians. It's got to be. I remember that. That's uh, like 2012, six... maybe 2013. Uh. I just remember everybody losing, everybody losing their mind. Mm-hmm. They were like, how dare you back squats are that. And now like, I don't, I don't really see a lot of, you know, high level strength coaches with high level athletes doing, you know, bilateral back squats, unless it's like a half fail older, if it's like a trap bar or something like that, a lot of them are going. So, you know, I hate to say it. Michael Boyle was right. I mean, he's, yeah, he's a big name for a reason. He knows, he knows what he's talking he is. but I mean, there's still something to back squatting. You know, I mean, there's, it loads the system. There's no doubt about that. Sure. Uh, it's, it's, an, I feel like in the elite level world, we're seeing a lot more uh, trends, the, at least on Instagram, right? You're seeing the trends of balance exercises and these crazy rotational drills. And uh, it's a lot less of the traditional strength and conditioning and more yeah. like fancy ish stuff. Do you think that's because people are trying to be Instagram famous or do you think it's legit training? You know, I, I know some pretty, some of the pretty higher level stuff is, you know, it's, it's not necessarily it. I don't want to bash on them, but I do think it's fluff. It's just novelty for the sake of novelty sake. There's not, I mean, there's some split squat, right? Yeah. It's, it's some of that. And it's just to keep person entertained, but I think there's nothing wrong with just a traditional Bulgarian split squat. It doesn't have to be a half field with, uh, on an SSB with the front leg four footed on a, a hat on an air X pad and you're holding isometric for five seconds and you're calculating the velocity of the bar. I mean, it's like too much, man. Like how's that guy going to reproduce that when he goes home for the weekend? Right. And right. is, is that just being Instagram and how useful is that when he gets on the court or on the field? Um, I think some of it, some of that is that, but I also think, you know, I have this discussion with uh some pt friends was you know some of these traditional lifts like the back squat doesn't necessarily always carry over to you know athletics like a heavy heavy back squat or a heavy heavy deadlift might slow a wide receiver down might slow like a sprinter down so they need they need to keep that you know rate of relaxation or being able to contract fast and relax fast which is a lot easier with lighter loads or a lot easier with a plyometric versus you know all right we're gonna do a five by five on on a front squat really heavy. Yeah. Well, like you're saying, you're seeing that in your power lift, right? They're super stiff. I, I, yeah. I think there's gotta be, in my opinion, you know, again, ask me this in a year, I'll probably change my mind, but there needs to be some base level of strength, right? Like yeah. if you don't have a certain amount of body weight to strength ratio, there's going to be issues uh, in performance, but then at some point there, there's probably a rate of diminishing return, right? Like if you got a 400 pound back squat, does it matter if it's 405 or 415, you know, for an athlete, yeah. maybe, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Um, once you're at that certain number of a two X body weight or two and a half X body weight, 
at that point, maybe it doesn't matter anymore. And you just got to maintain that strength and start working on all those, those fine stuff. And maybe that is where the specialty stuff's coming into play. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't think, know. I mean, uh, it's interesting. I mean, it goes back to what was that? Mel, it was Mel Sif and uh, super training. I think he was talking about uh, shot putters. And I think the, I, I could be wrong. I could be way off on the number, but he was, or yeah, it was shot putters. And he was like, the point of diminishing returns is like a 440 pound bench press. So it was like, <laughs> yeah, these guys get to 440 which isn't like outlandish, like a guy like Chad Wesley Smith, I That's don't know true, how much he benches, those, but as well as 500. Yeah. Um, but after that, it's just like, it's not going to make you any better. So like, you know, you see a guy who's, I don't know. I remember, you know, back in the, this is way back when like Shaq was doing like heavy deadlifts and heavy squats. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much that helped him or how much, you know, he needed that strength uh, and how much that translated to the field. But you see these guys that are, on the other hand, like I'll have these guys that are come in, they're 15 and 16. They can't do a goblet squat with a 50 pound dumbbell, but their, their parents want them to do crazy plyometrics and crazy. I was like, dude, he doesn't even have knee control. He can't even, he can't even run without knee valgus. He can't like there's, he has like the, the trunk strength of a jellyfish. Like, what are you worrying about plyometrics right now for? Right. Well, that's the downside of all the Instagram stuff, right? Their favorite athletes doing a single leg squat on a BOSU holding a bamboo bar. Yeah. Um, so when you put them on a stable surface and they're just doing a Bulgarian, they're bored. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah. they're not at not that. What... They're not at that. They don't have that training history. So no. yeah, that's the downside to it. I mean, what's with all the, right. I mean, Cleveland, right. What are, what's with all these soft tissue injuries? You think that's a powerlifting problem? Do you think that's an under training problem? Um, we're sensitive um, to it here because we've seen a ton of them, but yeah, you're speculation, right? You have no idea what those people are doing yeah. for training. Um, yeah. but in general, what are you, what are your kind of overall thought? Um, I mean, it's probably a combination of both. Like guys just don't have that tissue tolerance, but also guys aren't taking care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not getting that manual therapy. They're not getting the soft tissue work that they need. They're not recovering well. Um, so maybe that comes back into the overtraining aspect of it or their program is just not where it needs to be. Yeah. Such a complicated question. Yeah. yeah. Such a complicated question. I, I, there's two years ago, I think I just saw on my Facebook where they followed a, it was a girl's sports team. I think it was field hockey. Um, and the only variables related to injury was sleep and nutrition, which, yeah, makes again. sense. I mean, they were all in the <laughs> same training program, right? So it kind of yeah. eliminated that. And then the girls that weren't getting enough sleep or weren't eating well got hurt. So you got to be able to recover, right? Yeah. Be able to recover. 100%. And that's kind of where elite sports is going right now is no, all load management. They're just, Hey, where, where are these patients or where are these players at? What's their HRV? What, how do they recover? What was their nutrition? Like, okay, then they can do ABC in the gym. Oh, they didn't do any of that. So, you know, today's a recovery day for them, whatever it is. Right. I've my personal, you know, this is a sign I'm getting old, but I'm kind of in this model of like, what does the active adult need? What does the average adult need to stay healthy and, and live long? And so when you see this load management philosophy on these elite genetically just monster athletes and they're watching every little thing and then yeah. you're, you know, your average 40 year old is doing orange theory eight days a week and CrossFit five days a week and yoga, I, you know, like how do we load manage the, the regular, uh, adult, uh, and, and what's that line, you know, because some of that stress relief, right. It's, it's a um, sure. psychological piece and, um, it gets real complicated real fast. I feel like, 
And then we undertrain yeah. people. So then you got the other side of it, but kind of fun thoughts. Yeah. It's kind of, I think it's kind of hard to man. Like, it's funny, man. Like I'll go to my clinic and my clinics in kind of an affluent area where I'll see that guy. He's like, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I did. I did. I do yoga every morning. And then I come in here and I do my strength training and then I'll get, uh, I'll do my Pilates in the afternoon and he's training like four hours a day. Uh, and he's doing all these crazy things and he's not recovering. I was like, yeah, dude, no wonder you have tennis elbow on both arms and you can't like your shoulders on fire and like, dude, you're not recovering. But then on the other end, I'm in the emergency department, just begging someone to walk like half a mile a day. Yeah. Yeah. That's which message is, which message is more important, uh, at scale. I don't know. I don't know, but you know, the business, the, the person doing the four workout today is also probably some kind of business person that's also working 12, 16 hours and only sleeping for four. Yeah, exactly. That's that you, you nailed it. That's the other, that's the other problem, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's that balance is, you know, I guess if you had to pick, you're going to be on the, the too much movement side of that equation for sure. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That's something that uh, has just become very interesting to me as of late. Absolutely. That's That's a man. That's a, that's that's actually a pretty interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah. What is, what is the right, so when you have a specific sport, I think it's easier, right? Like if you're working with power lifters, like they got to be strong period. Like they don't need to run a mile. They don't need to do this. They need to be strong. But if you just want to be, you know, the best 45 year old, the best 60 year old, the best 70 year old, what's your training look like? What's the frequency look like? What's the recovery look like? What's the load management? What's the stress man, you know, like for just being an adult. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a good question, man. I think it comes person to person, but it's, it's pretty cool. when you know, just the average guy who's, you know, a lawyer at a day actually cares about that kind of stuff and wants to get to that ideal, like, you know, help for them. And they, you know, they come to you, they come to me, they go to a strength coach of, Hey, how do I get here? And I think those those are fun people to work with because those are the people that actually, you know, want to be optimal for whatever it is they want to do. Well, and that's the other side of having a, a cash practice, if you will, is that most of your people, I mean, 99.999% are there because they just want to be better, right? Like that's, yeah, absolutely. you're not getting any, you're not getting any fluff. You're, you're treating people that want to get better, um, yeah. which, is, which is awesome. All right, man. Well, we're coming up on an hour. Let's wrap things up. Uh, I appreciate your time coming out. That was, uh, or getting on the call. That was, it was awesome. <clears throat> yeah, man. Thank you for having me. It was good catching up. It was good chatting with you. I don't get. I don't get uh, these kind of conversations pretty often, man. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's good. Uh, well, that's the other part. When you're in a cash practice, right? You got you got to talk to yourself a lot. So yeah, we can absolutely. do Zoom calls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. We can do this once we a month. Zoom calls. Uh, yeah, we'll pick up another one. Maybe we'll pick a deeper topic on on the powerlifting side or something like that, and really try to dive into yeah. getting into the science and nitty gritty of something. That'd be fun. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you for having me, Nick. This was awesome. Yeah, it was great. All right, we'll see you next time. Awesome, man. Thank you. All right.